0: podcast Chad McBain What's up buddy I don't even know where to start. Actually, I know exactly where to start. I want to paint a picture for you first. Okay, paint okay it. Before we get into this, I want to paint a picture. I can remember vividly uh, okay. being 9, 10, 11 years old, and I lived a pretty charmed life, as you know, because of dad, right? You, so, you, you were spoiled, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> one of the perks was uh, we had Dodger season tickets, which we've talked about before, and the dugout boxes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were right behind the on deck circle, and you know this was back in the heyday. So Tony O was a was a big deal, you know. Uh, yeah. And so he he became friends with Lasorda and, and some of the players, uh, many of the players. Yeah. And it is so surreal to me when I think I can remember vividly sitting in Tommy Lasorda's little office which was in the locker room right? right and sitting on this couch and being so small like 10 and these guys are they're when you're 10 i mean they're big to me now you know what right. I mean, just size wise they're, they're right. men the big boys. you know the yeah. big boys yeah and i can remember sitting on that couch <laughs> so excited to be there and so painfully shy believe it or not when i was little i did not really speak did I really t- talk to your dad Everyone would talk to my dad, right, and I yeah. was like invisible, and I was happy being invisible right. because I was a nervous wreck around right, right. people like the <laughs> people that are with us today, okay? This one specifically, okay? Because I, I played shortstop, and I pitched. Yeah. So I was always, as a little leaguer, like just enamored by shortstops and pitchers. Pitchers, Okay? Yep, yep. And I can remember so clearly sitting on this couch, just soaking it all in, and the man sitting to my right with, with back then, after you pitched, you'd get wrapped up in like ace bandages with ice, and like, like it was like massive amount of like ice or whatever they wrapped him up with. We'll talk yeah. about that when I, when I formally introduce him as the, the buildup coming right now. But I remember this specific man sitting or standing, looking like a giant. He's probably 6'5", as it is to me. It looks like 8 feet tall right. from the couch. Right. right? And he's talking to Tommy about the game and that kind of stuff. And the, to have him now fast-forward, not to make us all feel old... 39 40 years later. Yep. On our podcast yes, sir. is mind-blowing to me that we have Dodger legend, 22-year major league baseball veteran. Yes, sir. Jerry Royce. Let's go. Come
1: on. Welcome. That is some kind of introduction. How's that? Congratulations, boy. And you did it without any notes. Right? That's impressive. No notes. Two-time All-Star. I
0: remember watching the no-hitter on TV. I want to say you no-hit the Giants, but I might be wrong. On that no, one. that's correct. It was the wow. Giants, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a road game. It was a candlestick, right?
1: Friday night. It was a warm day in San Francisco. Yep. In fact, when Vin, uh, Vin Scully, the broadcaster, Jerry Doggett, Ross Porter, three broadcasters for the Dodgers, they alternated between TV and the radio. It was Vin who did the Open and started the Open in San Francisco of a three-game series saying, it is hot. In San Francisco, as only Vinnie could do it. Of course, Vinnie could read the phone book and have the attention of everybody. <laughs> That's true. But I, I reviewed the DVD not too long ago to talk about the game because the anniversary of it was maybe a month ago. So I looked at the no-hitter, kept the score of the game, and counted the pitches and all of the things that a pitching coach does because I'm looking at it from a different perspective 39 years later, and I do remember some of the things that happened. But everybody sees it from the outside looking in. I'm the only one who sees it from the inside looking out.
2: Wow. Amazing.
0: Right?
1: Awesome. Do,
0: do you remember that day? Like, when did you realize, like, oh, I've got a no-no
1: going? Like, oh, oh, I'll tell you, any picture that tells you <laughs> that they aren't aware that they have a no-hitter going is full of it. They are. I knew it from the first inning because you get so intense and you get so focused on the work that you're doing right. that it, you're aware of every little thing that happens 60 feet, 6 inches away. Give you an example. There are guys that I faced. I don't know their names, but I could tell you their stance. And if they move their stance slightly from one at bat to the next, they'd move up in the box. They move away a little bit, maybe a little more uh, closer to the plate. They'd open their hip a little bit more. I would notice those things and make the pitches accordingly. Wow!
0: Yeah. Wow! It's so crazy. So,
1: the, in answer to your question, that's a long answer. Yes, I knew I had a no hitter, no hitter from the very start. And at, at what point do you feel no hitter
0: pressure, or did you?
1: Uh, yeah, when you get to get through the order the first time. Uh, yeah, then you say, Yeah, we got something here. We'll see what happens. When you get through it the second time, you say, Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah we got something going on. We got something going on. And then uh, the fans in San Francisco, with the score 8 to nothing at that point, realized that they might see something here because that scoreboard is so big and everybody can see it. They
0: so, want it at that
1: point. Well, they got to the point to say, Giants don't have a chance to win this thing, so let's stick around. Let's see some history. And, let's Let's see if some history can be made. And they were paid as a result of doing that by sticking around. So you get through the 7th, and then the drama begins the build. But in my mind, there was a countdown. When I got out there in the 7th inning, I said, nine outs. We can get nine outs. Got the first guy, eight outs. Just did a countdown. Walking off the mound, I said, six more outs. Six more outs, it's just two innings. Then in the eighth inning, I think there was only six or seven pitches that produced three outs. And I said, this is incredible. <laughs> wow. Because they That's went so after crazy. the first pitch. I, I I really didn't know what to expect, but they they come up there, and I give them credit. They were hacking, and they hit a couple of balls that I got some good defensive plays behind me because, well, the players were in it. They were a part of the history as well. Then we got out to the ninth inning, and it was that little voice that comes in your head every so often. I don't know if you guys experience this. And the voice says, all right, here's what we're going to do. Remember eight years ago, going back to 72, when I was with the Astros, and I went into the ninth inning with a no-hitter against the Phillies. And I lost that no-hitter. I said, we're not going to do this this time. The voice is saying this to me. So let's get this first man out. And I got a ground ball. Next man up, Rennie Stennett. Took the count to one and two, and I wasn't going to give him anything good to hit. So uh, I jammed him on a pitch, a little routine two hopper to Russell, perfect throw. Then Bill North is there. And so I took took a second, stood off the back of the mound, and I said, this is the only man that's standing between me and something I'll probably talk about the rest of my life. North takes the first pitch. I overthrew it. The boy says, get it down. It's all about location. It's not about how hard you throw. Next pitch, a little two hopper right back to me voice in my head says, take your time, he's not running hard, threw it to Garvey, and then the next 30 seconds, I don't remember anything. When I saw the video, I saw me jumping up and down. Wow. And wow. that was I've chilled the result of the video. I have
0: chills. And your infield was the legendary Garvey, Lopes, Russell Say, Jaeger catching yeah. infield at that point. Wow. That's right. That's 1980, right? Yeah. 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 Wow. So crazy! That's, yeah, that was
1: that was uh, that was just... unique. And uh, what the interesting thing about the no hitter at this point is not so much that I threw it; it's everybody's recollection of where they were at a moment that they considered to be historic. And for me, that is the ultimate compliment. Yeah, because if I did something on the field, the baseball field, that people can remember thirty, thirty-five, and now we're thirty-nine years later. And say, I was with my girlfriend, who later became my wife, or uh, uh, Brian Cranston told me oh my gosh. at a fantasy camp. He I just says, love
0: that he has a Brian Cranston story. Uh, well, th- th-
1: I can relate it only because I'm leading up to it. So Brian and I uh, were at a fantasy camp with the Dodgers not too many years ago. And he says, you know, when this was happening, I was struggling. You know, I was acting, but I had to have a regular job and we were working that Friday night, and I don't remember whether he was delivering furniture or what he was doing working in the warehouse, but whatever he did, he stopped whatever it was when I was out there pitching, and then went back to his job, and when somebody says they're back on, he stopped again and watched the game or heard the game uh, while he was working. And I got stories like that from people who email them to me or they send them to me or they stop me on the street and they say, you're no-hitter. Let me tell you about that. And they'll tell me something that, uh, that they were doing. And that's a connection that I have with fans as a result of that no-hitter. And what's interesting about that is that other people who have been um, entertainers or, or other ballplayers, they'll take a moment in time and, and they have that same reaction with people, with fans. Yeah. Shelly Fabre, well, I'm dropping some names now, yeah. she did an interview and she says what was so amazing about her, her song Johnny Angel that came out in 1962 is that people would come up to her. And they say, I remember that song because it was played here uh, at at a wedding or it was done here or I remember it when I used to see you on TV. And she And her attitude was pretty much the same as mine. What a compliment that is. That someone can remember something I did and it's become a benchmark in their life.
0: Right. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's just like I, I uh, can't even imagine. Like I don't know about you, but when I'm little, that's all I want to be. I want to be a baseball player. Well, did
2: you, you played when you were little? Obviously. Did you, yeah. And you pitched. Did you ever do anything like throw no no when you were little? No two hitter. Two hitter. middle league was that you threw no hitter. I threw no hitter. When, really? when I was twelve? I had fourteen strikeouts and my grandfather was there and he was watching it and uh, I I remember. Everybody, it, and, and when you're kids, you're talking a little trash too. Like sure. it's, it's right before high school, and and these kids are making faces at me, and 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 you know, obviously it's not on the big league level, but it's still the nerves, and it's the. Vo- I remember specifically the voice in my head. I was playing for the Diamondbacks. It was in Arizona, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> my best friend was catching me, and before my last batter, his last. We played seven innings. He comes out to me. He said, "Just throw, throw right by him. He can't touch you." He cannot touch you. Sure enough, three three pitches strike out. Everybody went nuts. Wow! So it's I I I. You know, obviously it's not the major league level, but right. the little league level when you're a kid, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Yeah. You know, my all my teammates signed the ball. It was you right. know 14 strikeouts. It, it, I'll remember it for the rest of my life. And, sure. And my grandfather still talks about it to this day. Right. He's Like you know, I remember when you were 12 and just. Blowing it by kids, right. and it was just so fun. And
0: and you then you know firsthand like it's so it gets harder and harder like high school 100%, is harder and then college is 100%. harder. Then, you know, like the, to have the fact that you went all the way to, to the top and then played at the top. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like getting yeah. there, and then there's like cementing yeah. your your stay while yeah. you're there. I mean, win couple World Series, you know, All Star Game. What you was win this? a World Series in 81. 80 the was the World Series, or the no hitter was eighty. And then, then were Series you 81. on the eighty
1: eight World Series team? No, I was. I was with the White Sox at that time. Got it. Okay. I transition. You know, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, you consider that to be the top of your personal mountain. Yeah. And you made the climb. You get up there and you take a look around. You know what I saw when I got up there? What? The base of everybody else's mountain. Right. Wow. And then I looked and I said, whoa. Right. That's where some of the elite, the real rarefied air, happens to be. And you played
0: in an era that is just, to me, is the best. I mean, you know, I mean, you played, you and Legends. Tom Seaver and all these. Play- I mean, anyway, you know, because you, you. You were there for almost two different generations of players, right? Because like by the time you left, or maybe three, even.
2: Well, didn't he play twenty two years? Yeah, like Like that's insane. (laughs) Which that doesn't happen now. Nobody plays twenty two years now.
1: Just to give you some perspective, when I broke in, I signed in nineteen sixty seven. That's ancient. Wow, that's way back there. Rookie year, yeah, some fifty years ago. Yeah, my rookie year was nineteen sixty nine. I graduated from high school in June of sixty seven pitched my first major league game in September of sixty nine. Wow. So in twenty seven months I went from pitching in a high school state championship team for a high school state championship <laughs> team to pitching in the major leagues. It was the right person at the right time. Now at that time Montreal was just coming into the league as yeah. was San Diego yeah there was expansion right it was same thing in the American League with Kansas City right being one of the expansion teams wow and this was when we wore the old woollen uniforms wow this was before there were knit uniforms there were a lot of ballparks that existed at that time that I was fortunate enough to play in that don't exist anymore wow I went through that one transition where a lot of the old ballparks were replaced with the cookie cutters. And I stayed around long enough to see a lot of those cookie cutter ballparks replaced with newer parks. Right. Yeah. So that's and Astroturf. Much, Ast- the uh, Astroturf places, um, right? Everybody was getting into Astroturf thinking this is the magical thing because it will reduce injuries, which was totally wrong. Right. And it will also um Uh, Reduce expenses and they were right about that. It did reduce expenses and they kept it around I thought way too long, but it was multi-purpose stadiums They had them in Cincinnati Pittsburgh st. Louis to name a few Candlestick Park in San Francisco Uh, So you have San Diego had one there. I think San Diego was the only one that was multi-purpose that had grass natural Mm -hmm. grass Do you remember how many pitches you threw in the no-hitter? I was going to ask that. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I just counted them uh, because I put it on Facebook when I made that post. I threw 105 pitches. That's what I counted. 72 were strikes. That's roughly (laughs) 70%. Wow.
2: (laughs) <laughs> He's painting corners right, right
1: there. <laughs> and
0: so like when you watch baseball today, I feel like I you know, I was ta- texting Oral this um when they were they showed like the uh the Kirk Gibson uh anniversary thing and so I sent Heiser a message, you know, cuz he was pitching um It's so different now. Like, you guys went nine innings back then, like, period, or at least eight, or you went deep into the game. 120 pitch counts. Right. Like, when you watch now, do you shake your head like
1: how the game has changed? Like, is it, like, what are your thoughts on I, I don't shake my head about it. I just realize it's a transition. And when I broke in and going back into the late 60s, there were still a lot of hard nosed guys. Who said that today's pitchers, uh, they're coddled. Right, exactly. Because you guys go every fifth day. We had to go every fourth day. And to get, now get this, imagine this, you may not even know this, but starting pitchers back in the 40s, between starts, had to throw batting practice. What? They did. <laughs> what? That's right. They had to throw batting practice. I don't remember the duration of the time, but you had talked about Don Newcomb before we came on. One of the reasons why Don Newcomb was traded was because he he got tired of throwing batting practice. He said, "I go out there, I give you complete games, close to three hundred innings a year, and you want me to throw batting practice? That's, crazy. That's just wrong." But we started. Uh, I was when there when a. Five-man rotation was instituted, and everybody says pitchers are coddled these days. You guys have it so good. And then managers, I guess, I'd like to say it was Tony larusso who changed things around by having a closer, Right. even though teams had a closer before. They just didn't say that this guy is our closer. And then it um, eventually transitioned into a one-inning guy. They right. didn't have multiple innings. Uh, you take a look at the career of uh, Rich Gossage, for instance. I know that he had a, a boatload of saves, and many of those saves were multiple inning saves. He would go three innings, two innings, inning plus, but it, he just wasn't to come in there and close things out in the ninth. Now you have guys who whose job is specifically for the ninth, and you build your bullpen and to bridge the gap from your starter right. until you get to your closer, if you're fortunate enough to be in the lead, and that's how managers seem to plan their games. Although now that's even changing, because there are some teams that have an opener. I saw
0: that. I noticed that first, like last year postseason, is when that when I first started seeing that.
1: Sure, to yeah. go through the lineup once, maybe twice, two innings. Then they'll bring somebody in who can give some innings and transition to the, the matchups in the seventh and eighth, which mm-hmm. bridges the closer coming in. Do you like that, or are you
0: more prefer the throwback, uh, more traditional?
1: Well, remember where I'm, where I'm accustomed to. Sure. I, going out there believing that nine innings is what I signed on for, and nine innings is what I want to give, and if I get it and win, then I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Turn the page and get ready for the next start five days later. Uh, the way it's done now, it's it's just a transition. It's the way that baseball's done. What will happen, I guess you'll have to wait 20 years from now to see if it was the right move. But this is the way that it's done today. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to sit here and be the guy, the old guy, standing out of his yard yeah. telling the kids, get off my lawn. I'm not going to do that. No. What I, If it works... And that's the way they want to do baseball uh, or they want to handle their pitching staff because of all the analytics. And it works. Well, go ahead.
0: I have no factual basis on this, Chad. But, like, I feel like there's more injuries to starting pitchers now than there was when Jerry played.
2: There's a lot more Tommy Johns, for sure.
0: Like, so why do you think that is? Well, if that's even accurate. I feel like it's accurate. I feel feel like like it is. I feel Like, like it is.
1: Sports medicine is so much better now than what it was even when I played. Now, remember, it's been 29 years since I played in a major league game. So Mm -hmm. they have additional personnel to help diagnose injuries. They have uh, strength and conditioning coaches, and they have a masseuse on the team, and they come to the ballpark early, get their treatment, do their workouts, and the workouts now are position-specific. For instance, an infielder, the power-hitting infielder won't focus that much on running. It'll be more fast-twitch kind of uh, work before he goes out there. Whereas somebody who's an outfielder, who's not a home-run hitter, may have a different program when he goes in for his workouts or his batting practice. It's much more specific because there's been a great deal of study, And a lot of training about these things. Now, I don't know what they do with pitching. I was a pitching coach in the minor leagues, uh, what, 15 years ago? And things really have transitioned since then. So uh, whether it's good, whether it's bad, uh, I, I don't really know. Now, if I would have had these things available to me, the analytics and the trainers and the meals in the clubhouse, you know, I'd like to see exactly how that would have worked out for me. Right. Because to have them, I don't know how much I would have used them, but in talking to pitching coaches today, uh, they still tell me the same thing. You know, all of these things are good. It's good to know what the guy, the batter that you're facing, what his tendencies are with two strikes, we'll shift the infield around late in the ballgame, we'll bring this guy in, or or all of those different things, but it's only good if you can throw strikes or command your pitches. If you do that, then it all falls into place. If you don't, I don't know how you teach somebody. Now you, you don't have something there in front of you. You've got to make up a whole new game plan and get yourself through this ballgame. Yeah. But that's the sign of somebody who is a winner, is to be able to make up a game as they go along and still keep the other team close or pitch deep into the ball game and even win it. Yeah. Those are the champion guys. Like you. Uh, To a degree. Yeah, I I had my times. I was like that. But there were guys that were even better at it that I used to just sit there and watch and say, how do you do that? I had a nice conversation many years ago with Tom Seaver. And I asked him, I I said, when you go out there, you have 36, maybe 40 starts in the year. He says, well, not quite that many, but what? Uh, I do have them in the 30s. I said, how often do you go out there and you have everything working? Your fastball, your slider. You can change speeds on it, work both sides of the plate. And he says, maybe six or seven times, which shocked me. It floored me. This yeah. guy's a Hall of Famer. Right, right. And he said, I said, Tom, that's once a month. He goes, Yeah, that's about right. And I said, Well, how you know what happens? How do you win ball games when you don't have it? He says, You have to make it up as you go along. He also pointed out something to me that I learned was true. Warming up in a bullpen mound, you may feel pretty good. And your fastball may be, let's say, tailing into a right-handed batter if you're a right-hand pitcher, and you get out to the mound, and suddenly it's not there. Huh. It's like once you cross the white line, <laughs> it just decided to go back in the dugout. Right. And now you've got to do something.
2: That <laughs> you got to figure it out on the fly.
1: You had it's exactly right, and that's what he would do. He would still use the pitch, but he would change his course, and use it to set up some of his other pitches, and. There were times he said, I come out in a fifth inning, sixth inning, and suddenly the fastball's there. And now it's like another tool in my tool belt, and it's something I can use. And now I had something 92, 93 miles an hour with some action and some location, and I could put it where I want, and then pitch to the third and fourth time through the order for hitters. And he said, this is probably what I do four out of five times, five out of six times that I go out there. And I thought, well, that's why he's destined for the Hall of Fame—is right. because he's able to do those things.
0: So, when you threw the no hitter, did you feel like you had everything working that night, or nope. were you making it up?
1: It, um, you know, they, <laughs> well, I threw mostly fastballs. I, you know, I didn't break down when I watched it on a re, on a DVD recently. Uh, exactly what the pitches were, but mostly it was fastballs. I had a big lead. How hard were you throwing? You know, I don't know because I didn't pay that close attention. Uh, to velocity, I would guess. I was told in '83 that I pitched a game and stayed at 92 and 93 the whole game. That's still coming, man. Right around a, you know, right around <laughs> and 100 back
0: pitches. back then, that was bringing heat. Like, yeah. like there was only a hand. Like now, everyone has a couple guys that throw 98 to to 100. Yeah. Back then, you had maybe three or four in the league, unless I'm mistaken, right? Like, there, well, there wasn't. Yeah, there Flame were guys, throwers everywhere.
1: There were guys who could touch a hundred. I'm sure Gossage wow. could, Nolan right. Ryan got it up there pretty good. James Rodney Richard. Right. He threw pretty hard. And then
0: that's it, until Clemens Gooden, right? Like You know, I don't remember yeah.
1: because I knew some guys threw pretty hard because it sounded like it was a strike. I right. couldn't see it. I couldn't <laughs> hit it if I did. But as far as the pitches, what what they were able to do is, is is locate their pitches. And when they did that, that's that's how they were successful. Wow. Yeah.
0: It just blows my but mind. Get, but, but getting back to the no-hitter, was,
1: it was just primarily fastballs, and they got a lot of ground ball outs. At that time, I had changed my approach to pitching from strikeouts to getting somebody out in one of the first three pitches.
2: Save throwing, the pitch count, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, save the pitch count, keeps the game moving. I actually sat down with a legal pad one day and wrote down, all of the good things that happen, getting somebody out on one of the first three pitches. Yeah. Then, after I wrote page and a half of all those good things, I said, you know, it's only fair that there's got to be some bad things as a result of doing that. And the only thing I came up with, the only thing I came up with, is that you're not going to strike out many guys. Yeah. That's it. Because you're pitching to contact, basically. You're pitching to contact. Right. Get get somebody to put the ball in play. Put it down in the zone. And one of the big advantages that I had for the Dodgers is that the years I played, it was an offensive team, offensive and starting pitching. Yeah. With Lasorda, that was just his way of operating his ball club. He wanted starting pitchers. He wanted guys who can hit, right? And that was his, his yeah. key to we had to four success. guys that hit 30
0: homers in a season right. back then, right? You had Baker and Garvey, sure.
1: say, yeah. Did and, you? And the guys were the big averages. Yeah. Did you
2: ever have a Bull Durham moment where you shook off your catcher and he was pissed at you, or 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 do you not remember? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did, and
1: maybe I had a, had a couple of these things. Or you know, what do you what do you want to do here? Right. So, but I'll get into some of those meetings in, in just a bit when you know we'll bring that up. So hold that. That's one. fascinating. Because <laughs> there's some there, there's some great stories about yeah. that. Uh, but for me, uh, it, it was just about location and then keeping the pitch count down. And one of the big advantages when pitching for the Dodgers, being an offensive club, is that we spent more time on offense. Yep than we did defense. You're getting some rest. Yeah, they're getting rest. They're doing what they do best. And because of that, it was one of those ripple kind of effects. I got plays behind me. Now, this wasn't a great infield. They, they had some attributes defensively that were good. They were good. And playing together... Because they knew each other so well, you could see that it was a well-oiled machine, Right. but it wasn't a gold-glove type of infield because there there just wasn't the personnel. They couldn't do all the things that, let's say, the Cardinals could because they they had the best uh, defense. But what they did is work together well. 18
0: years they played infield together, right? uh, Eight and a half years. Oh, eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. That's a lot. So you put them (laughs) all together. Now it's impossible.
1: Everybody knows what everybody's capable of doing. Uh, I was getting plays behind me that other pitchers weren't, and they couldn't quite understand what it was. I never noticed it. But he said, you know, Bert Hooten said in that draw, says, I don't get those plays behind me. I get I get Say diving over ground ball and Russell does and reach it. And there he is right there going in the hole for you and throwing somebody out. Dang it. I love it. So that was it. Now you want to talk about catchers. I yeah. had two catchers. Okay. I'll, I'll just shift this around yeah, right here. I had two guys that are number one catchers Mike Sosha.
2: Who oh. became an
1: outstanding manager. Yep. Love and then and then Steve Yeager, yep. who, if it weren't for a guy by the name of Johnny Bench, would have been the premier defensive catcher in the yeah. National League. Yeah. yeah. So two guys, but they had totally different approaches to the way they caught ball games. For instance, Sosha, to give you an idea, well, let me go let me talk about Yeager. I had a meeting with Yeager one time, and I said, um, Let's do this, Steve. I want to pitch this guy this way, that way. And he's just nodding his head, taking a <laughs> drag of a the smoke. <laughs> then drinking some coffee. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I said, I want to run the ball in on him early, and then late, what I want to do is see what kind of reaction we get from what we do early. And I just ran it like that. And if we have to, we'll mix in a curveball here and there. He says, I'm tell you what we're going to do. <sighs> Sip that coffee. And he said, for your fastball. I'm not going to give you one sign that goes to this direction or a sign that goes, to this. I'm just going to put two fingers down. You throw it where you want. He says, wow. now, he, he says now your curveball, just keep it down, your changeup. What changeup? You don't throw a changeup. <laughs> so you just get that ball over, get it close, I'll catch it, and we'll let that be that. That was a meeting with Steve Yeager. That is, it that is comedy. Awesome. Yeah, it is. Now, Mike Socia, a Yeah. contrast this <laughs> with Mike Sosha. Hey, are you ready to sit down and we'll talk about these guys because i got some great <laughs> ideas. Mike, let's go. He said, we're going to start off like this. I want to test this guy inside because I think if we show him inside early, we can get him out with a particular pitch later in the ball game if the situation calls for it. We talk about the most powerful hitters are the guys that really give me trouble. Yeah. So this guy hits you better. In fact, he hits you so many points higher than the previous guy. How does she know all this stuff? And he would go through a ball game. And we get to that point, and I knew where he was going because we had a meeting about it. And then he called that pitch. It was a key pitch, and it got me out of a jam. And that was the difference between staying in a ball game, maybe getting a no decision uh, if I didn't do it, or getting the guy out, completing the game, and getting a win. That's the way Socha operated things. For instance, one night I was pitching against the Cubs. It was at Dodger Stadium. And the cutter, which was my best pitch, the one that ran into a right-handed batter, it was it was aces coming out of the bullpen. But getting into that first inning, it wasn't doing anything. <laughs> Ryan Sandberg came up, batting second, hit one off the padding on the top of the fence. that came back in. So she calls timeout with Sandberg on. He says, you know what? That cutter, you've already thrown three or four of them doing nothing. So here's what I suggest. He had an instant remedy. He says, let's go to your sinker. Change speeds on it, go back to front with it, and then when we have to, we'll just come inside and show the pitch. And hopefully sometime during the ball game, when the cutter comes back, this is now we're going back to what Siever told me. Yeah. The cutter comes back, and then we'll have something else to operate with. I ended up pitching a shutout.
2: Wow. That ball game
1: <laughs> without going against everything we right. talked about in the meeting and pitching it totally opposite of the way that I had planned. And the only way that I got through it. Was because of Mike Sosha. Wow! Wow! Not only was he that good uh, about a particular pitch in a ball game, he would remember going through the lineups with each, you know, with each pitcher, yep. and say, "We're going to use that pitch." And then, if we didn't use it in a ball game, we'd come back later in the season. And he says, "Remember what we talked about in April or May." I don't, I didn't remember what we talked about 15 (laughs) minutes ago, but Mike says, no, we're going to set up that particular pitch and we're going to get, get him out on that because we still have a chance for an out. And this is a freebie in a tight situation. He would remember those things. So there you have it. Two top catchers. Yeah. (laughs) Two number ones playing for the Dodgers, two winners, total, two totally different approaches how to handle pitchers. That's so crazy. What, what do you prefer? Or do you? I was winning ball games. That's all I was concerned yeah. with. Yeah, To me, my focus, try to get this guy out. Let's find a way to get him out. Who' did build he, the outs? Who did
0: you used to face? When they'd come in the box, you'd be like, "Oh shit.
1: Never had that. Really? really? No, I never had that. Never had that concern. And it was I know that somebody hit me well, and I had to think about it a little bit with nobody on base. You know, it opens things up a little bit. But when somebody, it, you know, it's the point of the game where you have to get it an out. You got to come up with something and try to get that out and keep it out of the middle of the plate. It was just, it was just the way you had to operate. Mm. Yeah, there was nobody I really feared. There were guys who hit me pretty well. In fact, I'm asked a number of times if there's one question that I'm asked on Facebook more than any other question. It's who was your toughest out. And what I do is that there's a link on the Internet at at RetroSheet.org that has the batter-pitcher matchups. Really? I copy the link.
0: RetroSheet.org. Yeah. I need to visit this. I'm curious. That's a statistical. And then, yeah, Yeah. yeah,
1: then you'll go down the menu. You'll find the pitchers or the regular players, and somewhere in there is a link where it says pitcher-batter-matchups. Click on that link, and it will just list every pitcher that a batter faced or... Every batter that a pitcher faced. Wow! And you can Thousands. go right through. In some cases, yes. Mine, well,
2: twenty-two years. I mine's imagine a, there's. Yeah, mine's right. a long
1: list. Yeah. Mine is a pretty long. list. Did you list. face Griffey, his dad? Yeah, Griffey Senior. Yeah, and I <laughs> might have faced Griffey Junior. And I also faced Barry and Bobby Bonds. Wow!
2: Wow! <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember any any at bats with Barry,
1: or what? What you threw to him or anything? I know that in one game he, he got a couple of hits off me. Yeah. So that was early on in his career. I was at the end of mine. Right. Yeah.
0: Now, someone like Barry, in your eyes, are his numbers tarnished because of the accusations of of
1: steroids and stuff like that? I I would say right now they are, but time time changes a lot of different things.
0: And do you think that in his era, at least for the most part, the, the playing field was level? Like, even let's just say he was using stuff... Um, I'm sure he faced tons of pitchers that were using stuff, too. Sure. So does it level out? Clemens. And and does it... Does it? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Do they wash?
1: I don't know. Yeah. I don't know because, first of all, I don't know what, what he was using. I don't know how much he was using. I don't know if he was using. Personally, right. I don't, but I think there's a lot of evidence that says he was. And then there were other players out there that may have been doing the same thing, maybe on a particular night they weren't doing anything right and then there were pitchers who were probably involved with it we we may never know all the different right. people who were involved with things what about Pete Rose what about him did did you did you face him Oh, many times. Yeah. I was fortunate against Pete. I think he hit something like two forty against me. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> the hit king, only good for two forty against Jerry Royce. <laughs> well, down, Pete, come well, on! Well, you got to look at it this way. I don't. I think uh, out of maybe a hundred at bats, he may have struck out just four or five times. Wow, <laughs>
0: that's amazing! So
1: he put the ball in play. He didn't walk very much, and I think maybe hit two home runs off me. But wow. it, that was in all the years that we faced one another. Um, but he hit the ball. He hit it hard. Yeah. But he happened to hit it right at somebody. And he hit a pitch early in the count. So yeah. my idea was to put the ball in play. I did that. Unfortunately, fortunately, when Pete hit, he hit it right at somebody. I had the same kind of luck with Paul Molitor.
0: Oh, he was a beast of when, when I faced
1: him in Milwaukee. He yeah. hit the ball hard all the time. But Robin Yount, who batted just yeah. two batters later, Robin hit me about 4 for 450 Wow, Robin was a Diamondbacks coach at one point. Yeah, he was. Yeah, a, yeah he was, he was a base, coach. first yeah. base. First base coach. Yeah. So there were some guys that um, in baseball parlance that I owned, <laughs> and then the reverse is true as well. Yeah. They own me. Yeah. And they said, "Who, who, who are the, who are two that really own you?" And one of them was Mike Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what is it that Schmidt. It's like he did? owned everybody. Well, yeah, he's in the Hall of Fame, so he, he, he got a lot of guys. And he said, what was it about Mike Schmidt that made him so successful against you, When you know, now that you take a look at it? And all I could do was just shake my head and said, Schmidt happens. <laughs> That's
0: perfect. Putting you on the spot, I don't mean to do it, but Pete Rose belongs in the Hall of Fame or no? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It drives me nuts. I think, he does. Not, I think he I th- does. it's such a silly conversation
2: I, I think i think I think it all all have all i think what matters is what you did on the field yeah i th- I think like you know, let's say someone's in the Hall of Fame right now and they commit murder, you don't take them out of the Hall of fame right I think that it's it just be just because maybe you're not as good of a person Who, I, I still think not, it's it's about numbers right and it's about what you did for the game.
0: And well, he certainly what, didn't fix four thousand hits, so no I mean
1: <laughs> I'll tell you what what um, what the problem is. And it, it, it's kind of like uh, going back to your Bible study. Yeah. Adam and Eve. Yeah. And if you can imagine this conversation happening, Adam and Eve are there, and, and the good Lord comes down there and says, you know, this is for you. This is paradise. This is yeah. the way, this is exactly what I want for you. However, you cannot eat an apple off that tree. <laughs> you can't do it. Right. You can't do it. Well, Adam and Eve are, are going along and suddenly Eve sees that apple and says, you know, it looks like a pretty good apple. Takes a bite of it, and then good Lord comes back and says, what did I tell you? You can't do that. You can do anything else, but you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Baseball, when I played, had a sign every in every locker room. They had a meeting on it during the spring. You cannot gamble. You can't do it. If you do, the repercussions are going to be tough. Yep. Pete took a look at it, just like Eve, and said, "You know, <laughs> and here we are." That's good. Yeah, yeah. When
0: you put it like that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I so, you.
1: and I, th- I think that's the way baseball approaches it. You know, we just have this one rule. Right. The, just this one rule. Can't do that.
2: I have a question. And you're you've seen a lot of baseball. Who is the best hitter you've ever seen in your era or now? Best hitter.
1: Wow, that's tough. There were Boy, there were a lot of good ones. Are you
2: a Mike Trout fan?
1: You know, I watched him, but I see it on TV. So it's a little bit different than uh, when you have a memory of how you pitch somebody and how they approached. Yeah. And I gauged it more from that point of view. I've never faced him.
2: There's a story about Mike Trout where he goes to every pitcher on his team and he asks them, how would you get me out? And a lot of them are like, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'll try to hit my spots, but... You're a 350 hitter, and right. you're a freak athletically. So it's it's. I think his greatness is he's always studying with with the pitchers on a team, like the Jared Weavers, you know, you know these guys that throw pretty hard. And I, I think that's you know, I think Mike Trout is, is probably one of the best hitters I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, he's a beast. I mean, and he hits for power. I mean, he's yeah. just he's and so Yelich complete. too now from yeah. Milwaukee. Bellinger
1: too Bellinger, this year. Bellinger,
2: yeah. They're all good. Cody's a huge...
1: They are all good. There's no question about it. I've seen the highlights. I've watched them play. Uh, They're fantastic talents. Yeah. And I've always believed that if you have a player who is a talent, part of the reason that they're tops in their field is because they're able to make adjustments. Yeah. They're tiny. Cody did that. They're small. But they pay big dividends. Yep. And they continue to make them because pitchers are always changing toward them. It's kind. Of, it's, right. a, it's, it's a. It's a game within a game. Yeah. How do I get them on? I'm going to change this sequence. I'm going to pull back a little bit on a pitch, put a little more on it. Maybe go a little more inside. Yeah. They're always trying something just a little bit different. Yep. And the reason why the great hitters are great is because they're able to make the adjustments on the fly, yeah. instantly, in the matter of a millisecond. Yeah. And I'm convinced that if you took the great hitters of today, and put them back maybe 100 years ago to play that game, after the shock wears off and they realize what they have to do, they could use what they've already learned and what they are using in their own time and be great ball players then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the converse, converse is true as well. You take Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or any of the great ball players Ted of Williams, that era yeah. and put them into the game today that we see in baseball. They probably be just as great as they as they were back in out. their time. Yeah. yeah, they figure it out. That's right. a good way to put it. Yeah, that's part of the reason why they are superstars. Yeah. Right.
0: Out of winning the World Series, being an All Star, no, you're an All Star a couple of times, but out of being an All Star, winning the World Series, and throwing a no hitter, is does any one of those stand out more for you?
1: It all depends on who's asking me. Where I am, what the day is, and how I happen to feel. Got it. When you put four or five of your of your top moments in right. the game, uh, you put them together, and it just has a different impact depending on the context from where you're coming. For instance, if I were to give you five tops, and this is in no particular order, you've already named a couple of them. Pitching a no-hitter, pitching in a World Series, winning a World <laughs> Series game, the first day in the big leagues, and the last day in the big leagues. Mm. Yeah. Those are five. Yeah. Those are the five best days I ever had. And the all-star game, of course, would come a little bit later. It's a little bit down right. down below. But uh, And then starting an all-star game. And then some of the odd things that happened. Uh, all of those are different highlights. But the top five, as I'm sitting here right now, it's winning a World Series. And then second would be pitching in a World Series game. The no-hitter. First day in the big leagues and then the last day in the big leagues. Why were those so important? Well, for one, when you win a World Series, they give you a ring. When when you win an all-star or or when you pitch a no-hitter, they used to give you a raise, but I got a big screen TV that ended up in the clubhouse. Peter O'Malley was very kind. I told him, the TV's too big. I'd have to buy a new house to put this (laughs) in a particular room. I can't do it. He says, what will fit? And I told him, he says, there it is, next day. Wow. They delivered it. So, uh, yeah, those are, are are the two top things. Of course, the no-hitter, because uh, like the World Series, people have those memories of it. And they look at those pictures, and it brings them back to that moment. Yeah. And it's either I loved you when you did it or I hated you because I was a Yankee fan. Either way is good. It's that they remember where they were, what they were doing, and it did cause something within them that was emotional. And it stays with them today. So that's pretty important. First day in the big leagues, why was that important? Born and raised in St. Louis, 27 months before I went from high school to pitching in my first major league game and pitching for the Cardinals, the team that I cheered for. I remember every game or one of my first called up in 1969, we were, I was in Tulsa with the triple A team, came up on an off day. We had a workout. And then the next day was a Friday. The Cardinals were playing Montreal. I wasn't in the lineup. But it was going to be my first day sitting on the bench. And when I was a kid, I used to buy tickets. They had something they called Teen Night. You can get reserved tickets for $5. That was This was way back when I was in high school in the mid-60s. And it was a great place to take a date. You get $5. It was Teen Night. And then Bob Cuban and the In Men. Uh, who had a big hit. They were they were the band in St. Louis would play between innings. So you had it all going on. Cardinals baseball, your best girl, and Bob Cuban and the End men going on. And I'm looking in the dugout and watching the major league players. Little did I know that within a matter of a few short years, so I would be sitting on that bench. And in my first game in the big leagues, it was about the fourth or fifth inning. I looked over at the Montreal dugout, which is on the third base side, and my eyes went up. To those very seats that I sat in in high school, and it dawned on me, I had made it. Yeah, I had. I'm living the dream Uh, that millions of other St. Louis kids had. Yeah, whether they were years before me or years that came after me, kids everywhere. I was the one. I was one, maybe in a million, maybe who knows how many million. Yeah, but that was it. That first day in the big leagues, the last day in the big leagues. We'll fast forward 22 years was the only time I took a curtain call. It was, um, it was the last series in Pittsburgh in 1990. Because the season got started late, they did change the season around, and the first three games of all ball clubs were played at the end of the season because of a, of a potential player strike. Mm. And it was in that game, I was a September call-up like I was in my first year. I just wanted to finish my career out and do so in style. Jim Leland was the manager for the Pirates, and I had told him in the last uh, road trip back to St. Louis, I told my family that I'm going to retire, I told him, and the way that I worked pitching out of the bullpen was if um, there wasn't any problem about the third or fourth inning, I would call down and ask for permission to throw. Hold on. (coughs) So, I got permission, started throwing phone rings. And it's, it's uh, the pitching coach, and Ray Miller was the coach, and he said, I want to talk to Royce. And the guy, Tommy Sant, was the bullpen coach, and he was the only one that talked on the phone. He says, it's for you. I don't know what he wants. Ray asked me, he says, Jim wants to know if you want to start the final game of the season. I said, absolutely, <laughs> because it was the last game I was ever going to play in the major leagues. Wow. So I got a chance to start. Wow! And they ended up with a no decision. I came out at the end of five and a third innings, and it was the only time I ever walked back on the field. Got a curtain call and waved to everybody. Wow! You know, thirty some thousand people in the stands for that. Not many players are given that kind of opportunity, right? Or the chance to finish on their own terms, right? I did, and I did so in front of a standing ovation. Wow! It just doesn't get much better than that. No, no. It doesn't. <laughs> that
0: is just gold. Oh man! <laughs> and you touched on something I was going to ask you, which is so like before the World Series, or the night before, or the day of. Do you have those moments like, wow, man, I'm I'm here, I'm playing in the World Series, or I'm, start, I'm pitching an All Star game, or like the day, you know, the day after the no hitter, like, oh my God, I just threw a no hitter. Like, do you do you you go through all that, right?
1: Oh, yeah, in different ways I went through it. For instance, let's see, with the no-hitter, you brought that up last, Uh, the next day was a day game. It was a 7.30 game, I believe, yeah, 7.30 on a Friday night in Candlestick. Next game was at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. There might have been a double-hitter on Sunday. I don't recall because I was just kind of floating at that time. (laughs) Um, got to the ballpark the same time as everybody, and had to sign a couple of dozen balls. Umpires wanted them, people wanted them, and I had no problem with that. So I got out there, and I was afraid that I was going to be late on the field because Lasorda had this rule: if you're not out there for the national anthem, that's a twenty-five dollar fine. And uh, I, 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 a twenty-five dollar. I, I, I would have yeah, given them twenty-five just to. <laughs> Not to hassle, but he made such a big deal out of it right. I did, didn't want to go through the embarrassment. <laughs> so I get down there in time and remember in Candlestick, the players came through the uh, right field by the Giants' bullpen, right behind their bullpen. That's where the doors open and then you walk past first base, past home plate, into the third base dugout. And so I make my way, as I'm making my way, a pretty good crowd on hand, and I, I start to hear fans cheering. And I'm thinking, my God. Is uh, Willie Mays here or is right. McCovey here? And then I look up, and as I walk past, they're standing and applauding. And so I take off my hat and wave, it. and then they go crazy. And I'm thinking, this is for me. I'm going to suck this up as much yeah. as I can. And giants, nonetheless. Yes, and these are giants <laughs> yeah. fans. I make my way to the dugout. There's Lasorda standing with his arms folded. And he goes, that's 50 bucks. I said, 50 bucks? For what? He says, for waving your hat and, and, and acknowledging Giants fans. <laughs> so I looked at Tommy. him and I said, I wasn't acknowledging Giants fans. He says, Well, I can't tell you exactly what he said. But, you can,
0: it's okay. <laughs> but, I,
1: but I pointed up there and I said, Tommy, you see those four people up there in Dodger jackets there in right field and then there closer to the dugout and then right behind home plate? And he goes, Yeah, I see them all. Those are the people I was acknowledging. The hell with Giants fans. I had nothing to do with them. So he couldn't find me for that. Wow. That's great. That's Tommy. Now, yeah, you want to talk about the World Series? Yeah, as as far as the game in the World Series, that was exciting because there's a certain electricity that when you walk onto the field, particularly at Dodger Stadium, those three games, yep. man, I thought the bar had been raised, but was I ever wrong? I couldn't believe how excited this full house was. The place was rocking. Yeah, yeah. And we were behind one to nothing in the seventh inning. And I remember getting the, the, the Yankees out, trailing one to nothing, and I'm ready to sit down on the bench. And I'm thinking, just get me a run. I'll hold them, I'll hold them. As I sat there, Guerrero hit a home run, tied to ballgame. Five pitches later, Jaeger hit a home run. Yeah. And suddenly I got the lead. And within the course of five pitches, five pitches, the momentum of the World Series changed in that game and the entire World Series. And it was my job to get the final six outs. Voice comes back, well, 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 look where (laughs) we are. You had asked for it, now you got it. Then I I remember telling the boys, maybe I should have asked sooner so I wouldn't have to go through what I went through in order to get through seven. He says, doesn't matter. Let's get these final outs. And I did. I managed to do it. And that was to close out the series? That that was to win the third game or the fifth game of the World Series. It was now a 3-2 lead. We went back to New York. We had a rain out and an off day. And then we beat them on a Wednesday night. What year was that? 81. 1981.
2: That was yeah. that, that. was the Dodgers, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. The oh, wow. interesting thing is that um, that was on a Wednesday. Thursday, we just got home. Crazy time at the LAX. People just cheering. Yeah. Friday, they had a parade through downtown LA. Wow. And the reports were that 75,000, 100,000, I don't know how they count that stuff, but they televised it. We're riding through downtown LA, and I got the chance to stand on the steps of City Hall and address the crowd. And just looking out there, the multitudes, and it's all Dodger things, I go, wow, this is what it's all about. The next day, or later that day, it was a Friday. I'm just trying to get everything in order here.
2: Great memory, by uh, the way.
1: Well, I wrote wrote all of this in my book. This is why I'm leading all up to this. That's great. So uh, that afternoon, Peter O'Malley has a private party at Dodger Stadium. So they took us all back in the cars or at the private party. Suddenly, one of the public relations people said... um, you want to go on TV tonight? Be on a show called Fridays? Yeah, why not? Well, we got you, we got John Stone, we got Jaeger and Monday. Uh huh. And it was, um, we went over there. Michael Richards was on there. Michael Richards was in Seinfeld. Right. So he was the one, the actor, and we had a little skit where we were there and people went crazy when they were cheering for us. And then when the show was over, we're over at the ABC Studios. I'm telling you this because I know that you're familiar with some of the places I'm gonna sure. talk about. And then we go over to ABC <laughs> Studios and Jay um, gets off the phone. He was he was tethered to a phone all the time. This is before cell phones. He says, you wanna make a record? A record? He goes, yeah. You wanna sing on a record? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So we had the producer of the record, record who's, who's gonna do the record. Uh, we are the champions. And we had to sing in the phone so that he could determine what key we were in. Oh, my God. Yeah. We were in the key of Z. We were so bad. <laughs> but anyway, he put together an arrangement and got some of the best studio musicians together. Wow. And we ended up in a studio on a Saturday or yeah, a Sunday, I think it was, on a Sunday, And we recorded We Are the Champions, the Capitol Records studio. I remember that. Yeah, we're in there, and I'm looking around the studio. The other guys really didn't have that sense of history, but I'm thinking, wait a minute. Nat King Cole, Sinatra. Sure. All of the great recording artists of the 40s and the 50s and the Mm -hmm. 60s. Beach Boys didn't do it there. Otherwise, I I couldn't have done it. Beach Boys were in, um, they were over uh, another recording studio just down the way. Maybe even your dad has been in the and recorded in in uh, Capitol Studios maybe oh, something for sure yeah so anyway we're in there and I'm just I'm just shaking my head this is a great thing then uh, then the guy who's producing the record says um, you know Carson shows interested and they they'd like to have you perform I said this is well I don't know how we can perform because neither none of us can sing right <laughs> and we don't have we don't have an act he says we'll have it so a, a limo picked us up on Monday we went into Hollywood and had Barbara Mandrell's um,
0: oh my god
1: yeah um, dance guy yeah put it put choreographer. something together. choreographer yep. he put it all together and we're going through the steps and within two hours after learning the steps we're at the Tonight Show <laughs> studios and Carson's going to open the show after his monologue with us wow and wow and then I rem- that's right and then. Um, I remember as Johnny's introducing us, and the crowd's right there. I'd never been on the stage, never even looked at the stage. Right. And didn't have any idea what it was going to be like when the the, uh, curtain opened. And I remember standing there as the crowd's getting into it. Monday, Monday, who was two people down from me, because when the curtain opened, our backs were to the audience. We turned around, grabbed the microphone, and then we sang our piece. I had the first uh, first line, I paid my dues. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I swing around, or Monday asked me, just before the curtain goes up, he says, what's your pucker factor? And the pucker factor, man, is how tight is your backside? And I said, I said, Mo, you couldn't drive a grease needle up there with a jackhammer. That's <laughs> I could, tight. I could pitch in front of 56,000 people and millions watching on television, but right. ask me to sing on the Carson show on a Monday night. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. would say that was a... a Hold it in ballgame. Yeah, all of a sudden I'm in somebody's world and I'm trying to perform. But anyway, we did it. And it turned out to be outstanding. Then we ended up doing Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, and Solid Gold. And for those of you who are watching this or listening to this, you can probably find the Solid Gold appearance on YouTube. By this time, we were pretty good because we'd already we'd rehearsed a couple more times and and performed it. So we got on, and it was early in the morning. I think something like eight or nine o'clock when Marilyn McCoo introduced us.
0: That is just, yeah. oh, what stories, a ride man. that must have been.
1: Yeah, well, we were rock stars for a week. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the, the surprising thing they asked us, said, um, what would you guys like to eat? What beer do you drink? You know, what do you drink whiskey or tequila? Um, yeah, we, we kind of touched on all that. He said, what would you like? And we had somebody said, no, this all comes with us. So this is the way rock stars live? And Well, it was mild compared to what I found out about the way rock stars lived later. But, yeah, uh, Monday, looked at the guy and said, how about a case of Heineken? So they they had a case of Heineken waiting for us. Plus all these cold cuts and sandwiches and whatever we wanted. I love it. Yeah, so it was, um, that was an experience. Wow. That's what happens when you win a World Series in 1981.
0: Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Right? Unreal. When you look at what guys get paid (laughs) now, does it, does it, just floor you when you when you think about what salaries are and does it make you, like, I'm friends with Chris Benson. I don't even remember Chris. Played. Yeah. Yeah, so um, he always says to me, like, man, you know, he's, he's plagued with injuries and Tommy John and shoulders and stuff and he's always like, man, if I just could have held on for two more years, the pay scale, the way, and you, I mean, you, you, even from further back, like, do you look at what these guys get paid and just shake your head? And
1: oh yeah, I shake my head, but uh, not because I think they're overpaid or anything right, like right. that. I look at it and I take a little bit of pride in it because I was a player representative mm. and I was the guy that was voting when players decided to strike back in the late seventies mm-hmm. and early eighties mm-hmm. that helped build the foundation. That's allowed players to earn the money that they have. Yeah. So when I see them getting that kind of money, a $20 million a year contract, I remember what Marvin Miller told me. When, um, when a pitcher got a contract, a 10-year deal for 200000 a year, and I said, that is unbelievable money, Marvin. I, I just can't believe that a contract is that big. He looked at me, he smiled, and he said, imagine when somebody's going to get a contract like that for one year. There's going to be million-dollar contracts. And I looked at him, and I said, man, you're dreaming, but I like where you're going. Yeah, I, I think he saw, he foresaw it, that there was going to be contracts like this. But baseball, the reason they have it, one of the big reasons that they have it, and everybody seems to be doing well, is because of streaming. Because of the internet, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the you know that's the economic force that drives everything. It's mm-hmm.
2: so the revenue, the digital revenue now that's has surpassed actually TV revenue. You know, right. We
1: wouldn't be having this show if it weren't for the internet, right? Yeah, hundred yep. percent. So, yeah, so there you go. No, I don't get upset about it. I'm happy that the players get it, and I hope that it brings them happiness.
0: Yeah and today now you're uh you do broadcasting for the aviators
1: i do i've um when i I, when i retired i got a job with espn i did three years of working for espn all over all over the major leagues then i worked a couple of years here then i got a job with the angels doing television games on the road did that for three years and after that i you know i did a couple of Some cable TV jobs. This is before Fox came in and bought everything up. I was doing Arizona Fall League games. I was doing college games. I was doing just about everything. But then that market kind of dried up for me, and I coached for five years in the minor leagues. And then after that, uh, there was a position available with the Dodgers to do radio part-time, and I jumped all over that and did it for three years. Yep, I remember that. Yep, when that finished, then I came back here, and I'd been here... Well, ever since 2005. So I've been here 14 consecutive years, but I've also worked here in years between jobs with the ball club and with ESPN.
0: And the new ballpark over there is amazing.
1: Yes, if... um now, we're, are you seen all over the Internet? so people Yeah. You know, so, anyway, anybody who comes into Las Vegas...
0: All 33 people come that watch this show yep. come from all over. All of you. We <laughs> yeah. know you by
1: name. In fact, as I look into this camera right now, I can see you. Put, <laughs> put that fork down and wipe He's your looking. nose. Yes. So, um, when you come here, and if you want to see a baseball game, and see a baseball game, uh, as good as you can expect in AAA, you come to this ballpark, you're going to see it. The seats are... Are, there's nothing that's better because they are made of a fabric that doesn't take on heat or cold. It's just whatever the air temperature is, that's the uh, the temperature of the seat. So if you are afraid of sitting somewhere where the, uh, where the aluminum bleachers are sitting out there and you... And at the end of a ball game, you felt like you sat in three hours on a George Foreman grill. <laughs> Those days are gone here in Las Vegas. Yeah. They have a pool here, uh, which is interesting. Uh, the ball carries here a lot better than I really expected. But it's doing that all over baseball, so I don't know whether it's just because it's here or because of the baseballs that are being put into play in the games today. Um, do a lot of
0: the players pick your brain? Do they do, do they get to talk to you much or not really?
1: No, not really. There are, there are one or two that know who I am, but I talk more to the coaches. The players, you know, they have their own their own things to do, and I'm not around there that much. I don't make myself accessible to the players. Mm. Uh, by the time I get there and working just part-time, my focus is more on the program that we have to present that night. I, I come in and I talk to my partner, that's Russ Langer, so Russ, what do we got tonight? I so, said, nope, same old thing. This is it. This is minor league baseball. And there's not a whole lot of um, uh, planning as far as commercials or drop-ins or things that you would normally see in a major league game. Uh, but it's still, that, that to me, is like, it's like a blank canvas every time I start. And I do three innings of play-by-play. And when I do, it's open to me to present whatever I want. So I'll go into a baseball story. Much like the one I told you about Socia and Jaeger just a little while before. I've told that story on the air. That's great. I've told that story about uh, Mike Schmidt, and Schmidt happens. (laughs) I've told that on the air. Uh, So it just allows a certain amount of freedom and flexibility. And for me, that's the joy of doing baseball games. I'm talking about what's going on in the field. i got to paint pictures verbally right. so that the people who aren't there at the ball game will say, you know, that sounds pretty exciting. This guy makes it good, and we're going to go out to the ballpark and see what this is all about. And that's the whole purpose for having the games on the radio. It's a promotional tool.
0: Right. And do you want to get back in, like, the Dodger broadcast booth, or are you, are you happy just here in Vegas and, and the way your setup is now?
1: Well, I sure like what I have because I'm a couple of miles from the ballpark. I do 20, 25 games a year. I'd like to work more because I just enjoy it, and I like the preparation that I do. Uh, I'm 70 years old. I think <laughs> the clock on my Major League Broadcasting career is stop ticking. You know, It's always we're looking for somebody younger, somebody newer, somebody who's recently retired. And being out of the game as a player for 29 years, well, there's, we, there's a lot of us right? that once worked behind a mic that are no longer working. So I'm good with it. I'm good. And plus it gives me other things to do. So I write. I produce my photographs that I took during my career. Yeah. So I have a lot of interest. That in music and rock and roll, which kind of brings you and me on a right. parallel here. Right, right. Yeah, because you, you live the life that I'm kind of curious about. And <laughs> it's
0: maybe, so funny. My dad always yeah. says it. My dad's like, all the... Uh, rock stars and musicians want to be athletes, and all the athletes love hanging out with the rock stars. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. Like, my dad is, you know, he's met everyone, and he's still like a little kid when he's around you, or he's around Garvey, or Pete Rose, or any of the baseball players, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like you get reduced to 10-year-old status, right. you know? right?
1: Yeah, I, you, your dad and I have gosh, known each other 30 years, maybe a little bit more than that, Uh, though we see each other periodically. uh, There's still a conversation about baseball. In fact, I owe him some because I I bug him on some of the music stories. I I still want to hear about, bless you, where did that come from? I know you were writing at the Brill Building, and I know this came up, and then suddenly I didn't hear from you, and now it's Tony Orlando and (laughs) Don, and you've got a TV show. I said, there is there a story in there? Yeah. I want to hear that story. I want to write about that story. Yeah. So, you know, he's actually writing a
0: Broadway play about his life. Right? Yeah. Is he's actually, right? I think he's pretty much done with it right now. I think they're just doing, like, some revisions on the script, and uh, the goal is maybe end of 2020 or twenty early 2021 to uh, get it up on Broadway. But sounds it's, like, yeah, he wrote new music for it. It's
1: really great. Sounds like a road trip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for I'm, sure. I'm liking Let's that. Go. I'd like yeah. to see that. You'll sure. have to come out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, you're right about the parallel. The ball yeah. players want to be uh, rock stars, and the rock stars say, "Man, to be an athlete, I bet that would be fun." So that's why you know it's um it's a mutual admiration yeah <laughs> kind of thing. So uh, it, it is fun. It is fun when to get together. I know that when I saw your dad perform here in Las Vegas, man, it might have been two years ago. Yeah. Everybody was in the dressing room, and I know he had to. How you doing? How you doing? Shake the hands, you know, because people pay a lot of money to come in there, and they follow him everywhere. Yeah. And you got to take care of those people because that's your bread and butter. Butter. Uh, but when everybody had gone, you were still there. I had yep. the picture at home. My wife was there, and your stepmom, and and a lot of people were there. Finally, he sits down, takes a deep breath, and he sits right next to me. He says. Now we can talk some baseball. (laughs) I love it. And he had a mental list of questions to ask. And uh, he says, "You don't mind?" I said, "Tony, let's go, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'll give you, you know, what I'm giving you right here. Yeah, I'll give you the, you know, the full scoop if you have the time to do it.
0: Yeah." Oh man, thanks for talking baseball with us today. You got anything else for Jerry? <laughs> I, I mean, I could sit here all day. I, mean, I, I could I could do another 3 hours if we I would, love to, just, I would we love to just
2: do dinner with him one time while we're right? here. It'd be awesome. I know. Just we talk need to baseball. go to maybe we need to go to a game and, and well, hang out. I I've been I've been wanting to go to a Dodger game with you for so long. Right? Yeah.
1: All right. Yeah. You know a Dodger game is an experience. It's a different experience Absolutely. from what it was when I played there. Yeah. Because every second that you're at a Dodger game is paid for. Yeah. Right. Oh, you think about that—that that band that yeah. uh, that exists on that concrete piece that's below the upper deck and the second deck. Yeah, that thing is full of lights and people yeah. buy fifteen seconds, thirty seconds, a yeah. minute of advertising. Yeah. So, and it's a light show. It's a music show. Yeah. And it's entertainment on the field. It's showtime. We should all go. Yeah. We should all go. We should bring right. him and
0: yeah, see Tom and... cruising with Dodger royalty. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Man, thank you so much for doing this. We're going to have to do it again, though.
1: Yeah, well, let's do it. All but, right. Well, I like you know. it. We'll stay tuned for part two. Yeah. yeah Maybe I'll
0: what like. we do is we get my dad for part two. And then have them. With him. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That'd be awesome. And That'd you, be and you, got, and you guys just... You, we'll you know, just sit back
0: and watch. You know, that's exactly yeah, 100%, what I going to say. You won't hear much out of me.
1: You'll have one chair, an extra <laughs> microphone. We'll be sitting here, and, and Dad will go, I got this. I yeah. got this. And just, we please. actually
0: won't even... Chad and I won't even be here. We're just going to let you and my dad I'll sit, sit here. next to YT. I'll yeah, yeah. sit next to Travis.
1: 100%. Yeah, just pushing a question or something, yeah. or saying, you know, we've are about. We got about three minutes out, right? so close us totally. down. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> All right. Done. Jerry Royce, everybody. Thank you so much, man.
1: John, appreciate it. Chad, pleasure meeting you. Thank you you. so much, Jerry. And we hope we can do this again. Absolutely.
0: Oh, that's good stuff.
1: Action. Action Junkies
0: Podcast.